0: Well, good morning, and it is really good to see at least tops of faces for the people in the room. So thanks for being here and uh, welcome if you're joining on the live stream. I wanna start just by a little uh, audience participation. So if you're on the live stream, you can participate in your room uh, if you're with some people, but just shout out, what what do you think of, shout out some words when you think of the word family. Say again? Togetherness. Togetherness. Warmth. Fun. Fun. Food. Being understood. Being understood. Great one. Messy. Messy. All right. There we go. Well, I found some, say again, communication. Ooh, good one. I found some quotes about family I thought I'd share with you. Um, here's the hallmark one. Families are like branches on a tree. We grow in different directions, but our roots remain the same. Can I get an aww? Oh. Right. Here's the pandemic version. If you want to call a family meeting, just turn off the Wi-Fi router and wait in the room where it's located. So that's your. Uh, I need to talk to everybody in the family. Here's the, uh, you know, edgy ones. My my family is temperamental, half temper, half mental. And then George Burns: Happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city. I think some of us can relate to that. You know, I think. Family is, is amazing. It's, it's great. It's challenging. It's messy. It's communication is being understood. Sometimes it's being misunderstood. And in the last few months, I think we've, we've, a lot of us have had the opportunity to think about family a little bit more. We've been, some of us, sheltered in place with family. And the scriptures have a lot to say about family. Um, we're in the middle of this series on the book of Joseph, and we're looking at. Joseph, his story, but as we noticed in the beginning of the story, the the whole part of this text in Genesis is introduced with the phrase, the generations of Jacob. So this is really the story of Jacob's family in the book of Genesis, not just Joseph. And so we think about this family that we see as we've observed, Joseph and his brothers, Judah and Jacob and Benjamin And we think about what that looks like for us, because the scriptures say that we are the family of God. We are God's family, and we're supposed to, in some ways, be like a family. So the question we want to be thinking about this morning is, what kind of family do we see? What kind of family is Jacob's family? And we've observed that in the beginning, this was a family full of favoritism, jealousy anger murderous intent sexual dysfunction this was not a healthy family but we've seen some things happen in this family over the course of the story and by the time we get to what we're going to look at today we've seen that family change a lot and i think for us it's particularly important to be thinking about this because One of the things I've noticed over the course of the pandemic is that as we've become isolated, as we've separated from each other, I think our larger family relationships have become more difficult. I think it's harder to be together. There's more misunderstanding. There's more skepticism, assumptions, jumping to conclusions of people. And so this question of what kind of family are we as the people of God, is critical. And to be honest, we don't have a great reputation in our culture of being a family that people want to be a part of, of being a family that has something to offer. But I'm hopeful that maybe in this text, as we see the the place that Jacob's family arrives to, we might be able to learn some things about what kind of family we should be and how we could live that out more. So let's jump into this. Uh, If you remember, uh, we we see now, we pick up the story where Joseph's brothers are standing before Joseph. They've come, this is now their second time coming to Egypt to purchase food. Last time they came, Joseph said, you have to come back with Benjamin. And they didn't want to until they had completely run out of food. So now they're coming back, And as we read these individual stories, I want us to be constantly asking two questions. Ask the question, what kind of family is Jacob's family? And then what kind of family are we supposed to be? Those are the two anchoring thoughts that we wanna be circling through our minds as we're looking at this story. So let's begin by reading Genesis 44. I'll read verses one to four and then uh, nine through 12. So this is Joseph speaking. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, this is his brothers, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. This is what he did the last time as well. But here's the new part. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? So this is what happened. The steward did this. And this is how the brothers responded. We're going to read now verses 9 through 12. Whichever of your servants, this is... Uh, The brother's speaking to the steward, whichever of your servants is found with it, that is the cup, shall die and we will also be my Lord's servants. The steward responded, he said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. So the steward actually kind of tones down the promise that the brothers made. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and the tension is building, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. So during the last visit, Joseph tested his brothers by asking them to come back with Benjamin, and we've been seeing this over and over again. Joseph is testing his brothers, and There's this thought in the back of our minds, what is going on? Why is Joseph acting this way? But here he tests them in a deeper way. He frames Benjamin for a crime he doesn't commit. And then he accuses them with this powerful phrase, why have you repaid evil for good? It's actually a phrase that occurs throughout the scriptures Uh, David says it of a man named Nabal. You may remember that story. It's found in the Psalms. Jeremiah asks, should good be repaid with evil? It's one of the worst things you can do. If I treat you well and you respond in turn by taking advantage of me, that's a terrible thing. So Joseph accuses them of this, but what he's doing is he's falsely accusing them. He's accusing them of something they didn't actually do. Heard a story of a young boy who came home from school and he said to his mom, Mom, I got in trouble in school today for something I didn't do. And his mom was angry and she said, Well, let me talk to the teacher about this. That's not right. And she said, Well, what is it that you got accused of not doing? And he said, My homework. I know, it's not that great. Anyway, I tried. Uh, That feeling of being falsely accused. I want want you to think about a time when you might have been falsely accused. Somebody thought you did something you didn't do. Somebody accused you of that. How does that feel? What does that bring up inside of you? So think about this question. How do you respond when you're falsely accused? This is the test that Joseph chooses to put his brother's through. And it's a hard one. I don't know how you answer that question, but for me, I get defensive. I want to prove myself. I get angry that I might be thought of this way. So Joseph chooses this hard test to see whether his brothers have changed. And it's no surprise that this test happens in the course of a family, because the truth is within families, we often falsely accuse each other. The people we're closest to are the people that we usually tend to blame when things in our lives aren't going well. We blame our spouses, we blame our children, we blame our parents. Something happens and and we just look around and, and it's the people that are around us that get assigned the causes of our troubles. And I want to think about this season particularly for us as the family of God. And I think there's been a lot of false accusation happening. And I wanna ask you, how have we responded? How do we respond when we're falsely accused? You know, there's so many different ways that we are judging each other now. You know, you're being too careful about coronavirus. You're not being careful enough. You're being too focused on race. You're not focusing on race enough. You're, you're doing this, you're doing that. And there's all of these ways that we divide each other and we end up sometimes accusing each other of these things, and yet we're so isolated we don't actually know each other's hearts. So how do you feel when that happens? How do you feel when somebody thinks something of you that's not fair to what's really true of you? Well, the remarkable thing in this story is to see how Joseph's brothers respond to this. He tests them with a difficult test, but they end up responding in a pretty incredible way. So let's ask those two questions. What kind of family is Jacob's family? How does he respond? How do they respond? We're going to see that. And then what kind of family are we supposed to be in the family of God when false accusations fly? So Joseph has falsely accused them, and then he actually intensifies the test. He singles out Judah, and he's trying to focus his test On Judah. Listen to what he says. This is uh, verses 14 through 17. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to you, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, here's Joseph's test. Far be it from me that I should do so. That is, I'm not going to punish all of you. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So what Joseph does is he recreates the scene from 22 years ago that his brothers happened when they assaulted him. He creates a scenario where they can essentially sacrifice Benjamin to Joseph and get off scot-free. They say, oh, take us all, we're all guilty. And he says, no, I'm only gonna take the guilty one the rest of you get to go free. And think about Judah. Think about the decision he made 22 years ago to sacrifice Joseph so that they could be happier as a family, so that that annoying favorite son was taken away. See, the brothers don't even really know whether Benjamin is guilty. I mean, maybe he did it, right? Maybe they're thinking... He's the youngest son. He's spoiled. Maybe he actually did this. Maybe we should just let him suffer for his crime and go off, and we should be happy. Judah can escape with his life if he's willing to sacrifice Benjamin, the new favorite brother of his father. Judah would be in the clear. Now I want you to think about this kind of situation in your life how you respond when. Someone else is suffering, and you don't necessarily have to get involved. You could actually just walk away and let that thing happen. But maybe you should, and maybe you shouldn't. Maybe they deserve it, maybe they don't. What, what kinds of things go through your mind when you're experiencing a situation like that? How do you respond when others are being mistreated? In middle school, I had a friend, his name was Seth. And Seth and I were good friends. We would hang out together pretty regularly. And one time we were going out kind of in the downtown of our little city. I lived in a smallish town in Connecticut in the downtown area. is kind of like University Avenue. There were shops you could walk around and stuff. And it happened that I was on the math team in middle school. i pretty proud of that. And uh, it also happened through some kind of odd middle school irony that the school bully was also on the math team. Not exactly always the case, but, but he was. And so me and the school bully, uh, we weren't exactly friends, but at least we were kind of like, we had this connection, right? Um, so Seth and I are walking downtown and I didn't really realize this as a kid, but my, my town in Connecticut had a, had a pretty large Jewish population. And I certainly didn't realize this, but there was a fair amount of anti-Semitism as well. Seth was Jewish, so we're walking downtown and and we run across the school bully and a few friends. And they start picking on Seth. Uh, And I thought it was just because, you know, middle school kids picking on another kid. But in hindsight, I realized it was anti-Semitic. They were picking on Seth because he was Jewish. And they kind of cornered him in this against this wall and he just started calling him names hitting him a little bit not like hurting him that much They're spitting at him but i was excused because i knew this guy we were math team co-teammates so i was kind of off to the side here's my friend getting assaulted these other people doing it i was a 12 year old kid i didn't know what to do Certainly wasn't gonna step in. I I did not wanna be a victim of any of this. And so we just kind of waited it out, let it happen. Eventually it wrapped up and Seth and I went on with our day. But I've thought about that moment and I've thought, what could I have done? Could I have stepped in? I had no idea what was going on. And I've also thought, what would I do now? You know, maybe my 12-year-old self can't be expected to do something, but am I the kind of person today that would step in and be willing to to expose myself to danger for the sake of somebody else who's being mistreated? I think about some of the things that go on in our world, and I got to ask that question of myself. Would I pass Joseph's test to Judah? Would I say, yeah, Benjamin probably did it. He's always been a little... It's always been a little creepy, that kid. I'm just going to let him go to jail. I'm going to live my life. In the story, we wonder, is Judah going to pass the test? And the question comes to us, are, are we going to pass the test? There's plenty of people in our world that suffer. Do we step in? Do we expose ourselves to ridicule or danger or inconvenience? Again, let's think about those questions. What kind of family is Jacob's family? This is the question the text is asking. What will Judah do in this situation? Joseph has given him this incredible situation situation on a plate. Will he take it? Will he take the easy way out? And then what kind of people are we supposed to be? What kind of family is the family of God? Let's see how Judah responds. Joseph has falsely accused them. Now he's given them this easy way out. Here's Genesis 44, 18 through 19. Judah says, Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or brother? So Judah brings Joseph back to the beginning of this thing. And Judah is about to launch into this long speech where he answers Joseph's question. But he wants to remind Joseph that Joseph caused all this. Joseph was the one that asked about the father, asked about the brother. So here's how he continues. We're going to jump down to verse 27. He says, Then your servant my father said to us, this is when they went back to Canaan, you know that my wife bore me two sons these are Jacob's words. One left me and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. I want you to think about this for a minute. Judah is recounting Jacob's words to him. And he says, my father told me my wife had two sons. That's not true. Jacob has 12 sons. Judah is one of them. And Judah is describing his father delegitimizing him. Judah is describing his father unclaiming him as his son saying, I have two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. If you felt that, wouldn't you be angry? Wouldn't you be bitter? 22 years ago, feeling that from his father caused Judah to want to murder his brother. But now he simply describes it. He's talking to Joseph and he says, my father said this to me. I have two sons. One of them is gone. You can't take the other from me. And somehow Judah doesn't seem angry about it. He doesn't seem bitter or like he's complaining about this pain. See, I I think what's happened is Judah has found a kind of radical acceptance with the hurt that has happened against him. He doesn't deny it, he just speaks it. He basically says, my father doesn't count me as a son. Not in an angry, bitter way, but just he's come to accept the pain of his own life. That is a remarkable place to arrive at, where you can not deny it, not say, oh, I'm fine, it doesn't bother me, but just to speak it and own it. Judah has come a long, long way. And because of that, this is what he's able to say. Let me jump ahead to verse 32. Judah says, for your servant, that's him, became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father and all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain. This is Judah speaking to Joseph. Let me remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah says, take me instead of him. Let me stay as your servant so that Benjamin can go back to my father. See, Joseph arranged this scenario where Judah could throw Benjamin under the bus and Judah could escape scot-free. But Judah turns it around and says, no, take me so that Benjamin can go free for the sake of my father. In uh, stories, movies, television, books, there's a thing called a trope, which is kind of a repeated storyline. And there's a trope that's called the take me instead trope. This is the sacrificial hero that, you know, someone else is about to get shot and they say, no, shoot me instead. And this happens, it happens in Harry Potter, it happens in Hunger Games, Shakespeare, there's all sorts of occurrences of this trope. Well, this is the first occurrence in the scriptures where we see this kind of thing. And obviously the central story of Jesus is a prime example, but this is the first time we see somebody willing to sacrifice themselves for the sake of someone else. And this is Judah sacrificing himself for the sake of his father's favorite son, for the sake of his father who Judah feels doesn't even love him doesn't even count him as a son. That's the depth of transformation that Judah has been through, that he's willing to offer himself to save the favorite son of his father who's disowned him. Judah has been transformed. He's been transformed so that he is able to sacrifice himself for someone else. What about us? Can we do this? Can you sacrifice yourself for the sake of others? Let's just say in our family. Let's just say in the family of God, can you sacrifice yourself for the sake of others within the family of God? Is that something that that you find yourself able to do. It's easy to say, it's easy to do in kind of small and like obvious ways, but but when it really gets down to it, you know, a lot of the things that are happening, a lot of the things we feel are because we're not willing to do this. I don't like the new music. I don't want to sacrifice it for the sake of someone that does like it. I don't like wearing a mask or I don't like other people wearing a mask or I don't like this or I don't like their politics or I don't like the way they think about this. And we end up not being willing to feel the pain of being different from somebody or allowing someone else to experience what they wanna experience. This is a hard thing to do, but let's ask those questions. What kind of family has Jacob's family become? It's become a family where this happens. What kind of family are we supposed to be? Is the family of God a family where we regularly sacrifice our own interests, convenience, preferences for the sake of others so that they can have what they want? It's a tough question. There's one more test. Joseph has tested the brothers, but as we're reading, remember I said that we're still wondering, what is Joseph up to in all this? And I think that the narrator of this story has been putting Joseph to the test to us. I think the narrator has been creating this line of thinking in our heads where we wonder, is Joseph toying with him? Is he out for revenge? What is he really up to? Now, after Judah's incredible offer, after it becomes clear that he has changed, Joseph gets emotional. He, he finally reveals himself to his brothers. And in this emotional outpouring, he says, I am Joseph. And, and he sends everybody out and he reconciles. He, he, he reunites with his brothers. And at first, they don't know what to do. They're, they're like, what is going on? They, they can't understand it. So after some time though then, this is what Joseph says to them to make them feel better. Here's Genesis 45, 5 to 8. Joseph says this, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve life. For you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and Lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Well, Joseph does several things here that are pretty remarkable. First of all, he forgives them, he makes it clear that there's no hostility in his heart towards them. He says, I, I have forgiven you. So much so that he's worried about them. He doesn't just say, I forgive you. He says, please don't be distressed. Don't be upset with yourselves. He's trying to soothe them for the wrong that they've done against him. And over and over again, he attributes these actions to God. Three times, he says, God sent me to Egypt. God sent me to Egypt. God sent me to Egypt. This was not your doing when, of course, in some very earthly ways, it was their doing. So Joseph demonstrates this remarkable forgiveness, but then we ask, why then all of these tests? Why the lengths that he went through, the things, the hoops he had his brothers jump through? Well, I think we see an important aspect of forgiveness here what we see is that Joseph is willing to forgive his brothers internally. He's willing to let go of the pain before he's willing to reconcile with them. And we see a distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is something that happens within. Reconciliation is when the relationship is repaired. And Joseph does something wise that I think sometimes we miss in our eagerness to talk about forgiveness. He forgives them, but he holds off on reconciling until he's sure that they have changed. He tests them before he's willing to reconcile with them. Here's the lesson for us. You don't reconcile with somebody who's actively abusing you. You don't repair a relationship with somebody who's just going to turn around and hurt you again. There is some wisdom in knowing how to deal with people that are very prone to hurting you. And so Joseph is is very methodical in his conviction to test his brothers before he's willing to make himself vulnerable to them again. It's the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Having done that though, having tested them, having seen their change, having seen that indeed Judah has been transformed, now he's willing to open up. He, He lets out his emotion. He lets down his guard. He opens himself up to them. And it's this powerful scene of reconciliation. But it's based on the fact that he's convinced of their transformation. So let's think about that. Let's ask our question one more time. What kind of family has the family of Jacob become? And what kind of family are we supposed to be? What we've seen is one man in Jacob's family being willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of his brother. The sacrificial nature of offering your life for another. And because of that act, that's the the narrative pinnacle of this story. The whole Joseph story, the, the anger against Joseph in the beginning, Judah's sexual dysfunction, all of this leading up to this moment where we see a man willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of another. And that man is none other than Judah. Because of that, the whole family is transformed and of course for those of us that are part of the family of God we are part of the family of God because there was another man who was willing to sacrifice himself for our sakes and that central act transforms us so that what we see in the family of God is the same thing we see in the family of Jacob number one that we are transformed. The family of God is characterized by personal transformation. We do not remain the same when we become part of the family of God. It is not something you just become a part of and keep acting the same way you've always acted. Somebody once said, um, I'm not the man I should be, but I'm not the man I used to be. We are all of us on some kind of a path, God is, working on us. He's growing us. He's developing us. We are constantly being transformed and transformation requires a lot of us. It requires the kind of humility we saw in Judah, where he was willing to be falsely accused. He was willing to submit himself to Joseph. He was willing to sacrifice himself for another person. And because of that personal transformation, because we are changed we have this incredible ability to reconcile with each other. We see personal transformation as well as relational reconciliation. Within the family of God, of all people, because of what Christ has done, we should be able to forgive each other, to reconcile with each other, being wise about it, not just stumbling into a situation where we're gonna be hurt again, but actually recognizing that people have been transformed and forgiving incredible wrongs. Think about the wrong that Joseph forgave his brothers for. And think about some of the wrongs that you have a hard time forgiving your brothers and sisters for. Those don't even compare. If you become part of the family of God, if you join up with this community, I can promise you, you will be hurt. There is favoritism, there is jealousy, there is anger, there is false assumptions, there is selfishness in this family, absolutely. But because of what Jesus has done, we're able to grow from that and we're able to be reconciled with each other. So here's the question that we have to ask ourselves, is this true of us? What kind of family was Jacob's family? What kind of family are we in reality? And what kind of family do you want to be a part of? What kind of family do you wanna be a part of? Wouldn't it be amazing if people talked about Christians and said, you know, say what you want about Christians, but they are willing to change, and boy, can they forgive each other. (laughs) if that were how we were known. You know, say what you want. Yeah, sometimes they're really obnoxious. Sometimes they don't know what they're talking about, but, but, but they apologize and, and they grow. And boy, they, even when they hurt each other, they are able to forgive and reconcile. Imagine if that's who we were and that's how we were known. This story and the story of Joseph is the pinnacle. This is where the story shifts. This is what we've been building towards. And I would love for this to be the kind of family that we become. What kind of family are we? Well, we've talked about how what makes us able to be this kind of family is Jesus Christ. The sacrifice that he made. And so now we're going to come to the table because this act that Jesus gave us. He gave us something to do, some physical act that represents the act that he did for our sakes, the the turning point in history where all of this becomes possible. And so as we think about communion, as we think about the bread and the cup, we realize that this is the moment for both of these things to happen. In this moment, we celebrate Jesus's death that allows us to be transformed. But we call this communion because it's a part of a community. It's not just me changing. This is something that unites us together. So we celebrate this in the room. We celebrate this online. We celebrate this together. And we are connected here to us each other along with every church around the world doing this regularly. Brothers and sisters from different countries, different backgrounds, different political situations. We are connected, all of us to them because of what happens here. So I want to pray for us and I want to invite you during the next song to to take of the bread and of the cup and to, to pray about those two things. Pray about how God might be transforming you and pray about what reconciliation looks like in your life. Let's pray. God, I'm really grateful for this story, really grateful for just the the powerful picture of how this family has changed from where they started to where they are. The generosity and the selflessness that we've seen today is just stunning. And it gives me hope that, that, that you could be growing us, that we could be a family where, where those things are true, where your characteristics are represented well. Thanks for this celebration where we get to reenact what Jesus did for us. And as we do so, I pray that you, your spirit would be at work in us, moving us toward transformation and reconciliation. We pray this by your spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.